All right. Well, good morning, Transit Church. As, as Nick said, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Saju. I'm one of the elders in the church. Um, and last week, we started a new series where we are looking at the book of Nehemiah. And we just introduced the book, so we're still going to be in chapter 1 today um, going through that. Um, but one of the things that, as we're studying the book of Nehemiah, our pastor had asked us to do was uh, consider committing to a 21-day fast. Um, so I don't know if from last Sunday you were earnest about it and you made a, made a commitment towards it or you just forgot about it. Um, it's fine. You know, both happen sometimes. You know, when you leave church, your brain can go blank and then you just come back. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's right. We did commit to that. So um, if you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that. We can, you can start tomorrow itself. Um, and Nick said it didn't have to be a fast from food. I think whenever we think about fasting, it's meals that come in, because typically that's what you fast from. But it's really fasting from anything that is of significance to you, um, and you're setting that aside. Um, and we'll look at a little bit about fasting today, because that's, uh, that's what Nehemiah does um, as he's wrestling with something really big. Um, but I want to encourage us to consider fasting as really a gateway for spiritual victory. You know, so when we're dealing with something so heavy, so big, it requires us to go an extra length, you know, and so fasting is often associated with prayer and fasting, but often it's when we're experiencing or coming across something that's so big that it's just got us so tied up that we don't know how to, how to manage that, how to handle that. So we, we can define fasting as giving up a craving of the body um, because you have a greater need for the Spirit of God, right? There's something in your life that you need resolved that's so deep, that, that's, that's got you locked into you so tightly, it's burdening you so greatly that you need a breakthrough from it, you know? So therefore, you set aside something of importance, something that's a normal rhythm, something that matters to you so that you make room for God's Spirit to minister to you. You know, so our, our lives can get crowded. I know that. Mine can be. Busyness is just a word that we all say. If somebody says, how are you doing? Busy, busy, right? And so the demands doesn't always leave this, this earnest space, you know, to pursue God's face. So let's think of fasting that way. It's, we're making space to experience the Lord more, you know, so that's what we're committing to. So Nick introduced a sermon series, and we started, um, and we went through the first four verses, and we're going to pick up from there. Um, and let me show you where he ended off. So if we take a look at verse four, here was the line that we had. If we can pull that up. Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> I'll look here. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, that's where we left off. And so let's reset the context for those of you that weren't there or those of us who are not that familiar with, with Israel from, you know, 2,000, uh, 2,500 years ago. Um, what is it that's leading Nehemiah to do this? You know, what happened? Well, the story tells us, it opens up and says that he got news. He got news from his brother who had just come back from Jerusalem that the situation was in bad shape. And by that, what it means is that he had found out that they were trying to rebuild their nation back up. They were trying to rebuild Israel and Jerusalem back up 
so that they can return back to it. That was the hope that they had. Unfortunately, that plan of rebuilding wasn't going so well. So the news that Nehemiah gets is that, ah, the walls are torn down and the gates have been set on fire. It's not looking good. The people that were in exile, the people that escaped, they're not in a place where they're safe. They're not in a good place. So when we see Nehemiah, it says he, he, he fell to the ground and he, and, he, and he wept and then he committed to fasting and praying. It's because of this situation, this news that he finds out. So let's, let's sort of set a little bit more context on this because what is it about this that weighs on him so heavily? Time, time is a little bit helpful for us, but I find it hard, I don't know for those of you, when we talk about BC because we're counting backwards, my brain doesn't think that way. Right, so this is, this is 445 B.C. When, when this news comes to him, which means 445 years till, you know, we get to the birth of Christ story. So it's counting backwards from there. So I'm going to give numbers that are higher than that to show older than that, which, right, is a little counterintuitive. But Israel, as you know, is a nation that God himself formed, right? He called Israel as his people, as a nation that he called and he committed to. And he, and he brings them from one situation to another across the Red Sea from captivity in Egypt and gives them the promised land. And this is the land that they have, and this is going to be their place. And Israel reaches a place of great heights, right? They, they reach a stage with King David and King Solomon where the nation is flourishing. The people are, are, are living a great life. The temple is built, worship is happening, and it's even a place that when you, read, when you read about Solomon, you find out that others come, right? Other great people come to buy things or to learn the wisdom or connect. So Israel has reached the height of its existence, and it's, it's really flourishing. And then you find this swirling that happens where it starts to fall apart. It starts to become undone. And one king after another, after another, you start to find, it says, they fought, did what was right in their own eyes, right? They were worse than the king before them. And so for several hundred years, I would say somewhere between 800 B.C. to almost 600 B.C. is when we have these prophets that show up, right? One prophet after another, after another, after another. And why are the prophets coming? Because the nation is falling apart. They've lost their direction. They've lost their purpose. So the prophets come to warn Israel to say, hey, return back to the Lord. Leave the idols that you're worshiping. Leave the cruel and unjust ways that you're living and return back to your first love. Return back to God himself. And you see small moments of turning and then they return back. Good, and then it's sort of, you know, two steps backwards it goes. And a good king comes in and then you find somewhere an evil king comes in and people get pulled backwards. And by 600 BC, the Babylonian Empire had already started to gain momentum and they're starting to siege on, on Jerusalem. And the temple is starting to be their focus. So around 605 BC, the attack comes and gradually within about seven years or so, the temple is no more. The temple doesn't exist, which means worship, which means studying about God, which means all the things that Israel was centered around is falling apart. And then go another 11 years or so by 586 BC, and the nation is no more. The people have been carried into exile, many of them into Babylon. And that's where we find out stories like David. I mean, I mean Daniel, right? And, and uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And then others flee. It says some of them flee to other countries like Egypt. And a few remnants remain, 
you know, in exile in Israel there. And Jeremiah is one of the last prophets whose job is to see the, the crying out and asking for people, but seeing that they will not turn. And so you see him see the nation becoming completely uh, overturned by another empire. And there they are living in exile. In 586 BC on now, all, a whole huge group of Israelites are living in exile in another country. Foreign customs, foreign ways, foreign kings, foreign worship, uh, all of that kind of stuff is, is happening there. Time passes, and you get to about 539 BC. So that's 47 years later, right? That's a long time. 47 years later, Babylon is not doing so well. They get defeated by the Persian Empire. Now, the Persians are controlling all of the possessions and the land that Babylon controlled, including Israel, including Jerusalem, including those that are in exile. And so that's when you start to see the story of Ezra, which is connected to this book, because there's a movement that people want to have, is, which is to, can we return back? Can we rebuild? And Nick mentioned that Nehemiah's wave is a third wave of people that are going back to rebuild, it, rebuild their, old, their nation, their city, their temple. And the first thing that they do is that they go in 536 B.C. to rebuild the temple. It doesn't go so well. It's, it, it starts to go well. It goes backwards. It gets tabled. And it takes about over 20-some years. But the temple, the temple does get rebuilt. So about 516 B.C., there's a temple there. But without governance, without safety, without the protection of, of a wall, there's just no way that you can execute a life where you can practice those things. Right? And so you find this in-between stage of a group of Israelites who are living in a foreign land but having their eyes towards returning back home. And how is it they can find a way to get their homeland back in place? Right? So somewhere around 558, I think, B.C., so add another 40, 50 years after the temple is built, right? you start to see that another movement goes and says, hey, we've got to rebuild the wall. We've got to set the city so that it's safe again. We've got to fortify the gates. We've got to find a way to protect against invaders and people who are going to come and exploit and take advantage of us. And so this is the, the movement that happens in 558. So it's about 13 years later when we come to the book of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah is getting word about, well, what's been happening, right? There's all this movement, all these people going, this effort to rebuild the, 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 the wall of Jerusalem. So what's the news? And the news that he gets is, it's not going well. All that you might have been imagining and hoping and thinking was going to be the state of it. You might be expecting, like, let me show you some designs of how it looks. Let me tell you some great stories of how we're, we're coming back together. That's not the situation. That's not the reality. You know, so when it says that he, he, he fell to the ground he, and, he, and he wept, it's because he comes to realize that all that he had hoped for wasn't going to be the case. I do find it interesting because if you do just the math of time, that's why I did the, 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 some of the dates, if you look at about 600 BC or 586 BC when Israel is no more, all the way to 445, it's about 140 years, right? Or 150 years. That's a long time. And yet, for some reason, Nehemiah's heart is still very much attached to his homeland, to Israel. I find that really wonderful and also a little bit difficult to understand. How do you hold that kind of affection for that long when you've, 
when it hasn't existed in that way. I mean, think about it. Count backwards. We're in 2022, right? Count backwards 140 years or 150 years. That takes us to 1882. Imagine if America was the last we heard of it was 1882 and you're living Canada or Mexico or something had taken over and, and you're living somewhere else. How much would 140 years later your heart be still like, oh my gosh, I just... Because you weren't there. You didn't live there. Your kids didn't live there. Maybe your grandparents, right, or your parents or grandparents were the ones who were telling you about this. So I, I'm, rest, I'm just saying this because I'm wrestling with this. I find it fascinating, both in a good way and a confusing way, that Nehemiah has such a burden that he, that he falls to the ground and weeps when Jerusalem isn't. It's like, oh, I, he's, he's very much, something about it is very connected. And, and of course you can understand in some ways this is his nation. This is his people, right? This is the story of, of his ancestors, right? This is, this is what he knows. And so despite the fact that he's in a foreign land, his heart is very much about wanting to go back home and wanting to see home return back. But it's the burden that I find uh, that it might be worth for us just to dwell on because he's very much burdened by the, by the reality of the situation. And I, and I wonder, as, I, as we think about praying, praying to the point where we're weeping, praying to the point where we're fasting, you know, beyond going through the effort of saying, hey, it'd be good for me to fast for 21 days. Yeah, that sounds like a good thing. Let's do it. But what is it that would bring me to my knees and say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you don't have to convince me, you don't have to tell me, I need to do this. I have to, I have to cry out to the Lord because the desperation is so great. And I think it's the major, tragic, hard burdens of our life that bring us to places like that. And we, we all have them, right? We all experience very heavy things. And, and you know, a couple of things that came to my mind, so let me, let me just share some of these. Um, on Friday, we were having uh, dinner, my wife and I, with a, with a group of friends, including one who started to share a story about his brother. We don't, we don't, we don't know his brother at all, haven't met them. Um, they don't live in this country, they live in Canada. Um, but he was so burdened, you could see that, that the people that we were meeting with were just so tired, they were exhausted. And they said, my brother, he's talking about his own brother, my brother, left his family. I have no idea what to do. I don't know if I'm angry with him. I don't know if I have to reach out to him. I've typed up emails, things I want to say. Uh, they have kids. They're believers. They're in ministry. He's now involved with someone else, draining their budget, buying things that seems like he's going through some crisis can't tell if he's having a mental breakdown, can't tell if he doesn't care, can't have a conversation with him. And I just watched as we were just trying to listen to them talk. And the weight, the burden, the sadness, because they were in the moment right there. This had just happened within the course of a few days. And they were actually caring for his sister-in-law and the three kids who had come to visit young kids. And I just thought, oh my gosh. Like, and there's no words. Right? There's no answers. There's just pain deep, deep pain and the kind that you just you just pray for 
right? You can reach out and hug them, but there isn't really any kind of idea that pops into your head and you're like, this, will, this is the way to do it, right? There's no wisdom or story or something. Another example that came to my mind is that I have a good friend that I commute with. You know, we, we, we've taken the train together for years, um, the VRE train uh, to work. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as friends go, you get to know each other's lives and you get in, you know, stories and connected and updates and this, that, that kind of stuff. And, and train was our place where we would just sit together. If we would get a seat uh, together, we'd sit together and catch up on what's going on. And I still remember one day when he just opened up and said, and it was hard, he was, he was being vague, he was being very evasive. He didn't want to share it, but he wanted to share it because you could tell. And he was just talking about his son. He had, he, he's not sure how he's doing. He had caught him. He got in trouble, actually, in college with some drugs. And, and so he's like trying to figure this out, but trying to think it's, 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 we can find a way, we can help him. Maybe he's just being stupid. I'm mad at him right now. I want to love him in a good way. But train ride after train ride, conversation after conversation, year after year, we saw a really wonderful family deal with their son going more and more and more deeper into addiction to the point where he became non-functional, to the point where he wasn't safe in the house anymore, to the point where they were wrestling with, do they actually have to ask him to leave? What do we do? Um, and I just felt this constant level of sadness. I remember this one preacher said this, you're never happier than your least happiest child. That's what he said about parents. Parents will only be as happy as their least happiest child. I thought, oh, that's really sad, but that's really true. <laughs> but it was the, the weight of a good friend, and we, we, we prayed with the family, we spent time, we encouraged them, and it's been an up-and-down journey, but you see this unraveling and this burden of that happening. I say these stories because that kind of heavy stuff. Some of you have prayed for me, you know, about my work. My work takes me to countries overseas, and in some of the countries where we're trying to do work and trying to rescue people out of slavery or trafficking, um, we work actively with the government, but politics get in the way sometimes. And sometimes the best brownie point that some political party can get is to kick out an organization that is a foreign-based organization and, and, and get some mileage out of it in their election you know, attempt. And so we deal with that stuff. And so I, one of the hardest things I deal with is the fact that at one point, you know, working in a country that I, that, where we have hundreds of staff, where we've been doing amazing work, and the need was so great, we start to hear that the government is starting to shut down our bank accounts and starting to squeeze down. And there's a potential that all of this could end like that. That was something that got me every day to pray. Oh my gosh, all these, you know, all these things that we've been building and hoping and all the people that have committed to work. And it's a thin thread like that, that it hangs. And it's, it's honestly, it's something that I've cried about and prayed about and nobody needs to tell me, you know, hey, maybe that's something you should pray about, you know, Saju. It's like, I want to, you know, just continually make that a, a prayer every time to do that because it's just too heavy. It's too big. And it's, it, it goes on as this constant battle. Another, another example is, um, you know, a, a struggle that I'm dealing with, um, my sister and I and our family, with my mom. 
My mom is in her 80s, and um, she's going through what is, seems to be a mental health crisis. But she's not saying it's a crisis. She's not thinking that. And so you're, you're dealing with an elderly person who is not fully there um, and not easy to deal with and not stable and not healthy. And it's, you know, and, and, uh, and, it's, and my dad is there, right? So I find my dad in this situation where he's sort of taking the brunt of this stuff. And Anu had, uh, my wife had, you know, my dad talked to a doctor and described the situation. The doctor said, oh my gosh, that sounds like severe bipolar disorder. And, um, and if she doesn't get help, there's nothing you can do. It's just going to get worse and worse. And you're going to be the target of it. There's paranoia. There's anger. Any change makes you upset. And it, is, and it was like painting a picture of doom and gloom and saying this is... And my sister and my brother and I, there's three of us, you know, it's just been this thing that we have carried of trying to figure out what it looks like. How do, we, how do we love our mom? How do we help our mom who doesn't want the help, who doesn't even acknowledge it, gets angry if we try to say it, but is completely unstable. And my dad is just trying to figure out how to do that. Two elderly people in their 80s who are just trying to, which is shopping is a, is a, is a big deal to them, much less taking on this thing. So I, I describe these things because I want you also to to, to come to the place where you're aware that there are some really hard things in your life that you too hold and we don't talk about it, we don't share it because the weight of it, the size of it will just collapse you in grief, right? There's such desperation that that's where fasting and prayer make sense. That's where you need to recognize that, oh my gosh, God, I need something more because it's not changing, it's not happening, things are not improving, you know, so it just brings us to our knees and we cry out to God. And so I want you to understand fasting from that context of, Lord, you meet us, you give us spiritual victory over things that really require us to lean in closer to you, strip away the things that we are holding on to, even if it's a meal, and replace that with a time of just crying out, you know, crying out to the Lord. And that's what that's what Nehemiah is dealing with. And this prayer that we're looking at today is that of Nehemiah communicating to God the weight of what he is feeling. I, I, I went, I will actually ask my son. I had some of this. I, I, I got this uh, water from a nearby stream. And this is, uh, this is the dirt and uh, sediments from a nearby stream. And I, and I just, I'm shaking this right now, you know, and, and, and making it murky because this is sort of how I think our minds are right? When I sit down to pray, my mind feels very cloudy, right? My mind is like all kinds of stuff is going on, right? And, and, I just, and I'm just going to leave this here, you know, for a little bit and pick it up afterwards because there is something about spending extended time with the Lord where hope and clarity and direction return. So let's, let's take a look at the prayer, um, which starts in verse 5. And I'll just read it, verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Um, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll unpack it a little bit more. <clears throat> and I said, this is the prayer that Nehemiah has, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive to your, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, 
that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word you, you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man being the king. And he says, I, now I was cupbearer to the king. Let me just say a word of prayer as we continue. <clears throat> Father, we want to come before you in a real way. We pause um, to strip away all that is artificial, all the Christianity and faith that um, will not sustain us when the weight of hard things overwhelm us, Lord. So meet us here. We are your people. We need more of you. As your disciples said when you asked them, are you still wanting to follow me? They said, where else can we go? Who else is there? You alone are our hope, Lord Jesus. You alone give us healing. Meet us here in this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so feeling the the weight of what's happening to Jerusalem and the lack of it being restored, Nehemiah says this prayer. I, I think it's very interesting in some ways if we just think about the concept of prayer itself because why pray? Why, why, what's the point of praying? I mean, God is all-powerful. God can do anything. So what's our purpose or role in praying? Is it necessary? Is it just sort of a cute little thing that happens on the side? Is there actually any meaningfulness to that? Right? Because we know God is all-powerful. Right? We know all things happen in accordance to the way God directs it. So what's our purpose in it? Why, does, why did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Why are we invited to pray? Right? If God is going to restore Israel back to the land, then God, you go ahead and do it. What is our interceding about? Why does God do it that way? Why is that necessary? I think there's a certain part of me that can sort of wrestle with it, you know, sort of intellectually and says, yeah, I, I don't know if there's a purpose. I don't know if there's a, there's, a, there's a value in it. Here's the thing that's important for us to understand. God moves and acts in this world all the time without anything to do with us, right? That's his unconditional will. God's unconditional will is constantly active in this world and it doesn't depend on us. But interesting, interestingly enough, there's also God's conditional will, which is to say that 
God has purposed that he will act in this world and intervene only through and specifically through human involvement. Not that he's incapable of it, but there are certain things that God has said until he gets our participation, until we are connected to that situation, the things God will not bring from heaven to, to, to change the reality, to change the dynamics there. Our cooperation is critical. Now, Blaise Pascal had said it this way. He said that God gives us the dignity of causality. Right? He says that in instituting prayer, God has decided that to allow our asking to matter. You know, God is the one who causes all things, but he wants us to experience that as well. And so it's not that he has to, but God has said, look, unless this, I will not move, I will not act. And you see a really cool illustration of that when the Israelites are in the wilderness, right, and, the, and they are surround, they're attacked from behind by the Amalekites. The Amalekites come on and attack them, and guess what happens, right? They're, they have to fight, and they're not fighters. They were slaves all these years. They're barely able to figure out how to survive in the wilderness, but they go and fight. And so it says Joshua goes into the valley to fight, and remember what Moses does? He goes up to the mountain. Along with Aaron and her, he goes up to the mountain, and a very interesting dynamic happens, which is Moses holds up his hand on the mountain in this sort of visual image of praying. And the story says that every time Moses held up his hand, Joshua had victory in the valley. But when Moses' hands came down, the Amalekites started to have victory. For whatever reason, God has said, look, I want you to understand that your intercession is going to play an integral part in anything in this world that happens. I can do it, sure, you know, it can be something that I just do, but what I want you to know is that I have created this world and made circumstances in such a way that you matter, right? That your involvement, your purpose is critical to this happening. The challenge, I think, is I don't know which is which. I don't know which is his conditional will. I don't know which is his unconditional will. I'm not sure if that's going to happen without my involvement. I'm not sure if that's going to happen only through my involvement. So I think maybe the way to error is error on the side of praying earnestly, asking all things. Because, Lord, I don't know how you operate. You haven't told me the secret. The Israelites didn't know. They're like, they, you know, the thing about that story is they never had to fight for themselves. Every one of the battles before that, God had done for them. Against Pharaoh, in the Red Sea, every situation. But here, he wasn't going to do it. Not that way. Unless you pray, unless you lift up your hands, unless you participate in it, it's not going to happen. It's just important for us to understand that that's how, where God designed us. He says, look, this world, the kingdom coming into this world, the transformation of the world, hope for the broken, is not something that I, because I'm powerful, just automatically do. I have created you, I have equipped you, I have called you, and now I'm depending on you. You are not just sort of a side ornament, right, to God can do it anyway. You are vital, right? You are instrumental in making this happen. So it's important for us to understand that. Now, the structure of the prayer is also something that I, I find um, important for us to just focus on for a second, because, or for a little bit. Because 
the majority of the prayer is not the petition. You actually don't get to the ask till the last half of verse 11, which is where the chapter ends. You go through verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and Nehemiah isn't getting to the point, like, hey, here's what I'm asking you, Lord. He doesn't. He actually spends an inordinate amount of time before that setting the stage. And it's important for us to understand what that is, because here's what it says in verse 5, if we take a look at that. It says, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant um, and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He starts with this, O, o Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. I don't know if you've heard this um, acronym that's used to describe how prayer works, but it's ACTS. A-C-T-S, right? ACTS, A meaning adoration, you know, C is confession, T, thanksgiving, and then S for supplication, A-C-T-S. So the supplication you're asked is not till the end, but it's this, this whole process of other stuff before that. And I, and I wonder why that's the case. You know, when I was a little kid, I thought, God seems to just want some positive praise before you can get to the asking part. So you have to say some good things to him and butter him up. I mean, this is just when I was a kid. Before God will sort of open up. It's like, why does God need to hear this? Oh, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. Right? But that is the structure of Nehemiah's prayer, and that's the structure of many prayers. That's the structure of Jesus when he teaches us to pray. Our Father, you know, um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then it realizes, maybe it's not for God's uplifting, maybe it's for mine, because I need to remember or recall the majesty, the power of the God that I'm speaking to. When I'm weighed down by heavy things, it's easy for me to look at my circumstances, and that's so overwhelming that I want to quickly go in and address that, but what I really need is to get some clarity back to says, wait a minute, this God doesn't dwell on earth. Oh God of heaven, you're outside of this reality. You're, you're way above this. There's none of this that, is, that is, you're limited by, none of this that you can't handle. You're the God of heaven. You're the God of heaven and earth. And when he says, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, he's telling himself, this is a great and awesome God. You see, when, when we have problems so heavy, so big, we need to be reminded that the one to whom we're going to is heavier, is bigger than the burdens that are weighing us down. And I realize now that the reason you start by praising and declaring those things is that I can't genuinely lean in and ask until I realize, oh, you can do it. You are capable, right? And that's why we say we fast and pray because it's the lingering prayer that even replaces a meal. See, when the problems that we're experiencing are just beyond us, we need to know, oh, great and awesome God. And what Nehemiah does is he starts by first measuring how big his God is, right? Then he mentions that the walls are down and the gates are on fire that the gates have been burned down. He first brings that into reality. And, and it's not easy for us. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, these truck commercials. I, I had this really helpful illustration to me. 
Um, often when you watch a, a football game, I, I, that's where at least I feel like most of the time I see truck commercials are in football games. Um, I guess that's where the audience that probably will likely buy it, right? So advertisers are smart. But you know the way that often trucks are advertised is they show you its ability. And you might have seen like two trucks, right? Like they'll put like two or three trucks back to back and it's in a situation where it's got to demonstrate its ability, right? It's got to like climb up this really steep hill and then on the back of it to tow it, they attach something like a huge, you know, trunk of a tree or something like that or a boat, right? And you have two trucks, like it's like the, the Ford something or the Chevy or the Toyota and then you, they just, they just want to show you a visible demonstration of something like this and then you start to get in and, and they start to show you which truck can pull that load and get up that hill. You know, and I think what's helpful for us is sometimes we think that getting up the hill is, is dependent on our ability to manage the hill, right? Or our ability to carry the load. That's not true. That has nothing to do with it. The load is not at all relevant to whether you can get up the hill on a truck. Right? The size of the hill has nothing to do with it either. What does? The horsepower of the truck, right? It's the power of the truck that determines whether you can get up there or not. And that doesn't appear to us right away. We don't recognize that that's actually where the source of the power is. Because we look at the circumstance, we look at the situation, and we see, we see addictions or marriages or circumstances beyond our control. Right? And we say, I can't climb up that hill. I don't have the shoulders. I don't have the networks. I don't have the money. I don't have the ability for that. Because we're not looking at the God who is the horsepower, who is the strength, right? That we can lean on to be able to take us through that circumstances. And it's important for us to recognize that that's our problem. We keep fixing our eyes on things that are here, right? The circumstances. And that's why it's important to pray, let these things fade away so that our eyes are cast on heaven, that God becomes more and more and more clear, more and more visible. Now, it would be incorrect for me to say, okay, so if you just fast and pray, guess what? Things are going to fall into place and it's going to work out. That's not necessarily the case. That would be, that's not the case either, right? We, we understand that Sometimes in this world, there are just situations that doesn't seem to make sense, and, and we, we can cry out about it, and it doesn't turn the way we expect it to. And that can be difficult. I don't know if you're familiar with a, a, a city in the Bible that's mentioned a couple of times called Dothan. I find it really fascinating. Um, Dothan is mentioned two times in the Bible, once in Genesis 37, another time in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's mentioned in Genesis chapter 37 because Jacob sends his sons, his older sons, to go and take care of the flock, and sometime later he sends Joseph to go and take them food. Joseph comes to Shechem, which is where they, they are supposed to be, but they're not there. But some man who happens to be there says, I heard them talk about it, and they said they're going to Dothan. So Joseph travels to Dothan, and he meets his brothers there. But it's in Dothan that his brothers see him coming, and remember what they did? They have rage and anger towards their brother because of how much their father loves him. And they think that he is spoiled, and they think that he gets this favorite status. And they decide that they are going to kill him. They're discussing these things. Should we kill him? Should we do this? And ultimately, they decide what? That they're going to throw him into a pit and either let him die there 
or later they see a caravan coming and they'll uh, throw him into, you know, uh, sell him into slavery. I can only imagine Joseph in that circumstance and how much he had cried out. Right? Can you imagine lying in that pit, experiencing this thing, all of a sudden everything about your world unravels? And he must have cried out to the Lord, help, 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 you know? His prayers must have been earnest because of the desperation of the situation. We find Dothan again in 2 Kings chapter 6, where Elijah is being surrounded and attacked by the Syrian army. Uh, and the king of Syria himself is after Elijah. And it's just Elijah and his servant, and it looks like they're goners. And the servant is incredibly scared, and he says, oh my gosh, and, he's, and, and, and Elijah says a prayer. And in that, the prayer was this, O Lord, open the eyes of my servant so that he can see that those who are with us is far greater than those who are against us. And after the prayer, the servant's eyes open, and what does he see? All around, horses with chariots of fire, well beyond anything of a might that the, Assyria, that the Syrian army was demonstrating. Right? God shows up, not in a little way, but with chariots of fire, whatever the heck that looks like, he shows up just for Elijah and his servant. But the question is begged, same city, a few hundred years later, same desperate need, two people praying, and one time, seems like God is silent. Joseph gets nothing. Joseph gets sold into slavery. And on the other occasion, chariots of fire, right? It's, it, it, it's hard for us to reconcile, and we can wrestle with those things. But I think the important thing I take away from, from that specific story is the, sense, is, is the issue that, can I trust the Lord despite all these circumstances, right? Because Joseph himself will say something much later, but it is much later. And what does he say, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You thought that you were doing this, but in fact God was sending me to Egypt to protect our entire family from a famine that was coming. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always jump out to us. The, the Nehemiah book starts off where it says that in the first verse it says that in the month of Chislev, or Kislev, he starts praying. Kislev, we don't use that month anymore, but, but Nick talked about it the other day. Kislev is basically November or December, right? That's what, that's what it is. Now he prays, and then chapter 2, which we're not going to get to today, it says in the month of Nisan, right? He stops praying, and he gets an answer to prayer. Well, Nisan is a month of April. So essentially, somewhere from November or December all the way till April, so three months, four months, maybe up to five months, right, depending on how the, how the calendar uh, we, we read it, that's the amount of time that, that Nehemiah prays. And Nehemiah, when he prays, he says, Lord, today, answer your servant. He says, today. And every day was a today but it was months and months later. It isn't that God doesn't hear these things. It isn't that God is not actively participating, but God is responding, God is acting. But how God brings it all together, sometimes we don't understand. But we, we need to continue to trust that he is not against us. He is not ignoring the cries of our heart. He is working all things for good, right? For those who love him. 
And as, as the prayer goes on, after he exalts the name of the Lord, Nehemiah then in verses 6 and, and 7 um, says this, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant, confessing the sins of the people of Israel that we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned against you. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your Moses, that, that you commanded your servant Moses. Right? So here, Nehemiah goes into a, into a, a, a confession, an acknowledgement that he has not done what is right. The people haven't lived right, which is true, but he also pulls himself in. There's no hedging here. There's no sort of kind of about it. He, he takes on the weight and the truth of the sin and the disobedience and says, even I and my family are guilty, right? So he's, he's coming in a posture of repentance. And it's important. I think we don't talk about repentance enough in today's world. Not that grace is not present for us, but the role of repentance is something that in some ways has, has diminished in much of Christian teaching or conversations. Because it's like, well, God loves us, so all is forgiven. It's true. And God's grace covers all things. It's true. But there is a power and a role of confessing and acknowledging our sins, right? And confessing and, and, and recognizing the truth of what we've done. Because God comes near to the brokenhearted. Jesus came to save the sinners. He was seeking those who were lost. You see, confessing our sins and repentance isn't simply just something we need to do to write the books. No, when we sin, there's a tendency for us to hide and a tendency for us to pull away and only give a small portion of ourselves to God. It's not that repentance is something that we have to do that says, hey, did you check off these boxes? Okay, now you can come this much closer. And God's like, all right, now I'm near you. It's not God who was hiding in the Garden of Eden when, when Adam and Eve sinned. It was Adam and Eve, right? And God is the one who invited them to the conversation and says, tell me what is it that you've done? What happened, right? Is he's kind of like taking advantage, you know, like sort of, like sticking it to them by saying, yeah, I, wanna, I want you to say it. Say what you've done and I want to I put you on the spot. No, he's saying, don't you understand? The thing that stands between you and I and our relationship is not my ability to handle your brokenness. It's your ability to handle your brokenness and therefore pull away from me. Right? So Nehemiah confesses this and I think it's a good encouragement for us to confess so that we remember it is in the confession that healing happens and reconciliation happens. And, 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 and you've seen this if you've had tough relationships, right? If you had relational fallouts, right? And you don't talk about it, and then you see each other, you know, in some sort of a setting, a family setting or something like that, there's an awkwardness to it, right? Because you're just like, you're being good with each other, but you can't, you can't sort of know how to get past it. That thing, that invisible thing of conflict is standing between you and that person, that relationship. But what happens when you, when you just sort of put it on the table, when you talk about it? Oh my gosh, the power of it goes away. That's how shame operates, right? That's how sin operates. So it's important for us to see that Nehemiah doesn't want anything to hinder his conversation, his fellowship with the Lord in this time. He's like, Lord, 
I acknowledge this sin, and I, and I ask, Lord, that you hear us nonetheless, and God does draw closer. Um, I'll, I'll close in just a little bit, I'm mindful of time. Um, and then comes finally the petition, right? So he, he, he reminds God of something. He said, Lord, you told Moses that if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us, that this would happen. Right? He acknowledges that, but he says, but you also told Moses that if we repent and if we turn and if we follow your decrees, that you would bring us back into our land. And I love that in some ways because it takes a certain, it takes a certain something to throw scripture back at God. You know what it is? It takes a relationship and knowledge of scripture. You have to know the God and know the things that he said to be able to talk to him about those things, right? Nehemiah wasn't being arrogant, but Nehemiah was actually saying, God, let's talk about what you said. Let's talk about the promises that you've made. I encourage you when you pray to look at the promises. The Bible is full of so many promises, but when you read it and you delve into it, and just even in the the Psalms itself, he says, Lord, let's talk about it. You said... You said you will not let the wicked prosper. You said that if I plant myself by streams of living water, that there will be fruit. To, that, w- let's talk about this, God. You know, let's claim and let's, let's lean into those things. So I love that here, where Nehemiah is able to lean into that because it's like, God, this is what you said. And, and I think God loves that, right? God loves people who are wrestling with his word and, and honest with it. And it's only at the end, finally, 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 the request comes. And finally, the last half of verse uh, 11, right? He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And that's his prayer request. I'll have the, the band come up here. This man is referring to King Artaxerxes, right? King Artaxerxes is the one that Nehemiah is praying for and asking whether he would respond here. And finally, at the end, he says, this is my request. I'm, I want to talk to the king. I want to see if the king would intervene or help us out. Lord, but before I do, grant mercy so that that conversation goes well. I'm just a cupbearer. King, trust me, I live and work in close proximity with him, but the thing that I want to speak about, the request on my heart, the burden that I'm feeling, I don't know where the king stands on it. I don't know how much he'll care. I don't know what his response will be. But he prays day in, day out, day in, day out, so that he can then say, you know, Lord, open the heart, the posture of the king so that he would receive my petitions. And, and this is Nehemiah's prayer. I want to come back and wrap with this last thing, which is, why was he burdened this much for Jerusalem, which was his grandfather, maybe great-grandfather's homeland, 150 years ago? And you're like, I mean, I, get, I, I left India. I love India, right? But... I'm also American, right? I'm not, I'm not watching Bollywood movies. I'm watching Hollywood movies, right? I'm, uh, I mean, not that I don't like some of that stuff, but the reality is your relationship with that 
diminishes, especially generation after generation. So why is he so hung up on going back and having his old world that he's never lived in? Maybe it's because of a deeper loss, the loss of the promise of the Messiah that is to come through the nation of Israel. The entire world has been promised. Salvation will come through you. Redemption for all mankind will come through this people group. And we've blown it. We've worshipped idols. We've forgotten the God that brought us here. It's not my food that I miss. It's not my language that I miss. It's that there's no sacrifice in the temple. There's no preparation for the Savior to come. The line that was promised that would bring salvation and light to the world. Did we blow it, Lord? Is that whole thing gone? Is there no hope for humanity anymore? Are we going to die in sin and will evil have victory? Is that promise abolished and destroyed because we messed it all up? Please don't take that away from us. Don't take that away from humanity. Please connect us back. I get it. I get why Nehemiah was crying. I get why he was on his knees. I get why he was fasting. Because without the hope of Jesus, the Messiah, there's nothing in this world that matters, is there? He is the one who can redeem that is this world that is broken. He is the one that can reconcile us to our Father. He's the one who knows our purpose. He knows my name. He knows why we are created. And he knows the beauty of all that we can experience, the richness of it that's been forfeited because of sin that we have made a deal with. And so Nehemiah is on his knees weeping because he doesn't want the world not to have the light of the world enter in. I'm grateful for Nehemiah's prayers because Jesus came. I don't know if that was a conditional promise or an unconditional promise, but thank you, Nehemiah, for praying that because Jesus came. The line was restored, and we can look to the cross and see that our sins have been paid for, and we are free. And for all eternity, we get to ask God all the hard questions and throw his promises back in his face, and he'll be happy to engage in conversation and dialogue with us. So let's close our time together by remembering the gift of the cross. So if you would just take your communion elements. If you don't have it, it's in the back on that table there. Jump back there and grab it. But that's, that's, that's what it is. We are taking this to remember that Jesus has rescued us. There is nothing, nothing that's separating us from the Father. There is nothing that can separate us from the Father. And the cost was high. He, he took his own body and allowed it to be broken and brutalized so that, so that we can have life eternal. So take this wafer, this bread, as a remembrance of his body that was broken for you. Let's do this together, church. And on the cross... He shed his blood 
every ounce of his blood poured out for our salvation so that in his crimson blood our sins can be washed and we can be made white as snow. So we do this remembering it happened. It's real. It's true. It's an event marked in history that changed history forever. So church, let's take this together remembering the blood that was shed for us. Father, we are grateful that your servant Nehemiah cried on our behalf so that the promised Messiah would be able to come and save us all. We look to you now, how great you are, God, how great you are. And we sing and we worship you with our hearts full of joy and gladness for the goodness and the love and the faithfulness that you demonstrated, your hesed, your steadfast love that you demonstrated to the people of Israel to end every one of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.